It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Thursday morning, the 4th of April. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. There has been another significant twist in the ongoing Brexit saga. MPs voted late last night by a majority of just one to force the Prime Minister to ask for an extension to the Article 50 process beyond the 12th of April and give Parliament the power to decide the length of this delay. The British Prime Minister, Theresa May, is meeting with the Labour Party leader, Jeremy Corbyn, for a second day to try and agree on a path forward. The German Chancellor is in Dublin to discuss how a European frontier will be secured if there is no extension and the UK crashes out a week from tomorrow and how a border will be policed on this island from next Friday. Meanwhile, the European Commission President Jean-Claude Juncker says the UK can be given a short extension and delay leaving until the 22nd of May if the Commons approves a withdrawal deal before next Wednesday. An extraordinary EU Council summit is scheduled for the 10th of April and it will consider the UK's position then. Karen Coleman, editor with Europarl Radio, which reports from the European Parliament buildings in Strasbourg and Brussels, joins us once again this morning. Good morning to you, Karen. Thanks Good for morning, joining Michael. us. The stakes are high, but if you were betting for Europe against the UK, do you think the odds would be favourable for the 27 leaders to send Mrs May back to London next Wednesday with the option of a very long extension or no deal? Oh, you know, it's impossible at this stage, Michael, I think, to be able to predict with any kind of accuracy what's going to happen. I mean, Jean-Claude Juncker yesterday, when he was speaking to the European Parliament, they had a a semi-plenary session in Brussels, made it very, very clear that no further short extension would be possible after April the 12th because it could jeopardise European Parliament elections, could threaten the future of the EU. So I think, you know, much and all as there might be talk about a short extension in Westminster, I think the EU just are not going to grant May a very short extension because they really still want her to come back to them to decide whether or not the UK is going to take part in those EU elections. But even at that, I'm not sure there's going to be unanimous support from the EU 27 leaders at this stage to even grant the UK a further 
extension way beyond, you know, um, the May elections. There's talk about, there was originally talk about maybe a nine-month extension or a 12-month extension because there's just so much uncertainty. And, I mean, it was interesting what Giver Hofstadt said yesterday, um, the uh, European Parliament's chief Brexit coordinator. He says, we cannot risk giving the keys of the EU's future to a Boris Johnson or a Michael Gove the architects of this Brexit disaster and a long extension would do exactly that. So I think views are hardening within the EU 27 about potentially giving May any long extension, which raises all sorts of possibilities. And again, the spectre mm. of a hard Brexit border much you know, looming very much in front of us. Well, the majority of MPs are opposed to leaving without a deal. I think that's probably the only thing that's certain in London today. So what does that mean uh, if uh, there is no prospect of a long extension and uh, there is no hope of a, a short extension because they can't agree a way forward before the 12th? What does all of that mean? Well, I mean, so... Corbyn, as we know, is continuing to have talks with May today. He is insisting that there has to be a customs union and other stuff, access to single market, a dynamic regulatory environment um, as well. Um, so he's insisting on a lot of, on a number of things that were Theresa's, Theresa May's absolute red lines. I mean, she's being called by her own party this morning, by members of her own party, sort of the likes of a kamikaze mm. prime minister. There are headlines about Tory party at war after May's Brexit betrayal. So I, I find it very hard to believe that even if she comes to an agreement with Jeremy Corbyn, which would seem to me much more likely that she has to acquiesce to Corbyn's demands rather than the other way around, they wrap up some deal and then they go back to the MPs in Westminster to get an agreement on that. I mean, I find it extraordinary that there would be an agreement that the, the Tory MPs would actually support an agreement like that. So let's let's say they do that, and before the April 10th summit, um, they don't get an agreement. May has nothing, and she then decides she must go back and plea with the EU 27 for an ex- a long extension to mm. Article 50. Now, the EU 27 will be forced at that stage to decide, are they going to give them a long extension to create some kind of maybe certainty among sort of an awful lot of uncertainty or are they going to say sorry we've just had enough we can't continue with this we can't bring in this enormous uncertainty into a new administration we're going to have to go with a hard Brexit I mean that is very possible or they may decide given the two options it is better to go with a longer extension, even though they won't know who, what prime minister they're going to be dealing with. It could be Boris Johnson. It could mean years of uncertainty as they try to negotiate a trade agreement. Very hard to tell, Michael, how this is going to go. I think either either a scenario is possible, you know, but but, mm. but certainly we, we're very close to a hard Brexit here. It's very hard to imagine Jeremy Corbyn giving Mrs May a get-out-of-jail card given that he, he wants a general election and uh, I think uh, it's possible, if not probable, uh, that uh, we'll be looking at a, a general election before next Wednesday. What difference would that make uh, to how the other 27 countries, including Ireland, would look on the UK's position? Well, it's going to, it, it's just going to mean continued uncertainty because what party potentially 
would be in power in the UK after that kind of a general election. What prime minister would they be dealing with? What would be their demands? I mean, it was interesting, uh, Geoffrey Cox, Attorney General in the UK, has hinted that maybe a softer divorce being possible and that potentially maybe they could sign up to a customs union but maybe they could get a get-out clause. So I think there are some signs maybe from some of the Tory MPs that they might be willing to back down a little bit. And Juncker, interestingly, has said that no sooner has the ink been dried on the withdrawal agreement that they're ready to start on the future relationship. So, I mean, I suppose, I I think throwing a general election in the midst of all of this Mm. would just be unbelievable altogether. Maybe they can come to some kind of a fudge next week where they'll agree where the Tories will ultimately maybe back May's agreement with Corbyn if there are signs that they can come out of something that they have originally signed up to. Um, I think throwing a general election into the midst of all of this, hmm. I, I mean, I, I don't know how the EU27 would agree to a longer extension if then they're going to start saying that they are, there's going to be a general election and they don't know who they will be dealing with in the future. An election, though, seems inevitable in the short term uh, because uh, Mrs May will not have the authority to govern. She'll lose the support of the DUP. She's uh, seeing ministers resign almost on a, a daily basis and backbenchers defect. Yes, and interestingly, um, I mean, I think that this Tory at war stuff is very relevant because, as you say, several ministers, even last night, I think two more ministers um, resigned in frustration at Theresa May. So you, we are looking at a real split within the Tory party. And now whether that manifests itself in an actual split will be interesting to see, where you get maybe some real hardline Tory Brexiteers forming their own party. And that is going to be a major, major development in British politics, because then you're going to have a split in in the Conservative Party. That means maybe the main rump of the Tory party becomes a smaller party, which, of course, means Labour stands a much better chance of maybe potentially ending up as the majority party and the party in power. Mm. Um, But there's a lot of ifs in that whole equation, but it is potentially possible, but it just raises, again, just Mm. unbelievable uncertainty. And and as we've talked about this before, Michael, on your Mm -hmm. show, the April 12th deadline is, is the one real certain deadline here, because by that date, the EU has to know whether the UK is going to participate in the elections. And even I was talking to a couple of the MEPs during the previous um, European Parliament session in Strasbourg last time, just last week, Mm. um, because, as you know, Ireland is set to gain two extra seats from these EU elections because of the distribution of some of the UK seats. And those countries that are to gain those extra EU uh, seats need to know whether they're going to put forward candidates for those extra seats um, if the UK is going to participate, then what happens to those candidates? Do they go forward and do the last two remaining um, MEP candidates have to hold back until the UK actually leaves? So there are an awful lot of uncertainties. The electoral boundaries in Ireland have been changed to accommodate those two extra MEP seats. So that's why on so many levels, it is really important mm. for the EU27 to know what the intentions are of the UK about those elections. But then again, as we have said, the EU27 are going to be really twiddling their thumbs here and wondering what kind of a government are they going to be 
leading UK-EU future trade negotiations with who's going to be the Prime Minister, what party is going to be in power. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Yeah, it, it seems as though the political turmoil over the course of uh, the next week will be historic, certainly in the United Kingdom, most likely here and quite possibly uh, across uh, the European Union. Over the course of uh, the next week, because we're counting down to the uh, 12th, which is tomorrow week, uh, when they'll be looking over the cliff. Now, what happened last night, I think, means Mrs May can't jump over the edge of the cliff uh, because uh, she'll have to consult with MPs who may decide that they would prefer a longer extension. Yeah, but I think um, this is moving, Michael, from really the UK deciding Mm. what they're going to do to the EU deciding what will be done for them. I think, you know, the EU 27 are the ones ultimately now who are going to decide what the UK is going to do in terms of an extension of Article 50 or not, because it's too late. I mean, it's highly, highly unlikely that the UK MPs will all rally round that there will be consensus on an agreement and on the future political declaration, which is the thing really now. I mean, mm. you hardly hear stuff about the backstop anymore. It's all mm. about the future relationship that they would all rally around in, you know, in the space of only little more than a week or so, and that there would be full agreement and that they would go back with certainty to the EU 27 and go, here you are, we've agreed on all of that. We just want a short little bit of an extension and then we'll start the proper UK-EU mm. trade relationship and future negotiations after all of that. I find that hard to believe that that is going to happen, in which case it will be up to the EU 27 mm. to then say, look, when May comes back to them with whatever she's going to say to them on April the 12th, you either we are either going to grant you a minimum of, I don't know, nine months, 12 months, yeah. two-year extension, mm. or you're out. We cannot any longer risk the uncertainty in the UK, jeopardising the future of the EU, we have to move on and we just have to take the consequences. And I can tell you, throw, mm. throw a, a coin up there and, and, and yep. it's any man's guess what way it's going to fall and what's going to happen. And I, I suppose that's what I was saying at the outset, that perhaps they'll say you can have that very long extension or no deal. If patience is running that thin though, Karen, uh, do you think the European leaders would allow space for a second referendum? But they still have to know, Michael, by April the 12th, whether or not... So that's impossible. You see, I mean, mm. any like they have to know by April the 12th if the UK is going to take part in the EU elections. Now, I don't know, could they... Somebody suggested to me last week that maybe they could give the UK a longer time to take part in those EU elections. We all do them in May and maybe they do them in June. I just find that a bizarre sort of option. But... Um, I mean, I think the referendum, I don't know that that really is going to be as much an issue from the EU27 anymore, because that's going to throw more things into turmoil. Mm. I mean, they need certainty from the UK. Either are they going to stay within the EU and then move forward and and get over this terribly divisive period, or are they going to leave and are going to... They're going to know what the future relationship is. And I think, you know, giving them time to work out whether or not they're going to have a referendum that could be like can you imagine if there's going to be another referendum in the uk i think it would be incredibly divisive and somebody said to me yesterday an interesting point if the uk takes part in eu elections that poses a lot of security issues for those 
potential MEP candidates. You know, we've already mm. seen, of course, with one British um, Labour MP, Joe Cox, how she was um, murdered because of what, you know, the political divisions in the UK. Another Labour MP was also targeted. Mm. So there are security issues about the UK participating yeah. in EU elections. Like the, uh, things have changed so much over mm-hmm. the last couple of weeks. They've become so divisive very difficult to see a way out of here. And I would think that probably what the EU27 want, and of course what British politicians and people want now, is a calming down of these high tensions, a decision being made, and people moving on with it, even if it, you know, is still going to be very difficult. And it might be the best option for the UK is, is to leave, to decide on the future relationship, and then Time will heal and, you know, new relationships yeah, will start. Or, or, or not to leave. <laughs> well, or not to leave. But, you know, mm. if, they're, if they're not to leave, then, that's, I mean, if, if they're not to leave, then they, I would say they have to have a referendum on that. The British mm. people have to be brought back into the equation to decide whether or not this is what they want. I, I, don't, I don't know that the, U, that the government could decide to withdraw Article 50 and to say, this is it, we're not going to go ahead anymore with, with Brexit and we're just going to continue the relationship with the EU. That potential might have been possible maybe several months ago, but at this stage, I don't know. I mean, okay. do, you, do you think that they could do that, that they could pull out of Brexit and say, that's it, we're not going to, we'll move forward after all these Not, not in the coming week, but maybe in 9, 12 or 24 months from now. Yes, and that's mm. possible. Yeah. If they're given mm. a longer extension, if there's a new election in the UK, if things settle down, if there's a new prime minister, if they start to reach a consensus, very possibly then they may decide once, you know, rifts have healed and the divisions have been sorted, that at that stage they go, OK, look, maybe we should go back to the people um, when things are these. And when the EU has its new administration in and when there are new commissions and things have settled down, maybe then. Yes, okay. and maybe at that stage they have it, but that requires then a much longer extension to Article 50 and the UK participating in EU elections. Okay, well, uh, another very busy day ahead today, as we were saying at the outset, indeed, a very busy week ahead of us for that matter. Karen, thank you indeed for joining us once again on the programme today. Karen Coleman is the editor of Europarl Radio, which reports from the European Parliament buildings in Strasbourg and Brussels. Michael Reed on LMFM. The chief executive of Sport Ireland, John Tracy, was asked... uh, uh, by Sinn Féin TD Imelda Munster yesterday if he has confidence in the board of the FAI. Yes or no, she said. John Tracy said, well, I'm not saying yes. Uh, let's talk about this with Imelda Munster, Sinn Féin TD for Loud and uh, Transport or sports, sports spokesperson for Sinn Féin. Good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us. He, he didn't say no either, but I suppose uh, that means the jury's out and there's a lot of questions which he hasn't had answered and can't get answers to, which is a little bit similar to everybody else, is it not? Yes, well, he's, I mean, Sport Ireland yesterday <clears throat> made no secret of the fact that they were hugely disappointed that the information they'd requested hadn't been forthcoming and that um, in the the response they got from the FAI, the FAI had said that they had engaged Mazars, you know, to carry out a a review and when the review was complete, that, you know, they couldn't give any information until the review was complete and Sport Ireland just don't accept that they can't give the information, you know, until the review is complete. So, um, 
They were equally frustrated yesterday, I have to say. Uh, and this hinges really on uh, the bridging loan, the €100,000, uh, as well as the reasons for John Delaney moving aside from the role of chief executive to this new executive vice president position. Yes, and all you know, everything that's come to light in recent weeks, <clears throat> just before I had asked him if he had confidence, I had outlined the fact that the FAI hadn't informed mm. Sports Ireland of the, if they were in financial difficulties. They haven't. They hadn't um, informed them of the hundred thousand euro loan. They didn't record it in their accounts. Um, also, in relation to governance, they'd changed the rules to allow long-serving members have an additional four-year term without mm. consulting um, Sport Ireland. And this, you know, was clearly. I mean, at, the, at as it stands at the minute, the, of the 11 member board, seven have served over 11 years and two have served over 15 years. Mm. And John Delaney um, has been on the board 17 years, 14 of those as CEO. But all of those have um, are in breach of the governance code, if you like, that recommends a maximum uh, three terms of three years. Okay, but if so the whole epi- series of that, yeah. But if those same board members who've been on the board as long as you say, if they've commissioned a review into what happened, should they not wait for the report from Mazars before making their own opinions known on it? Well, the, the FAI, going back in 2002, had um, commissioned their own report. They had instigated their own report themselves. And the report came back, it was called the Genesis Report, mm. and that but, came back with recommended reforms uh, for the mm. FAI board. And but that was long those, before the €100,000. Oh, I know that, but mm. I'm, I'm making the point yeah. mm. that even though they initiated this report themselves mm. and they recommended, uh, there were recommendations in relation to governance, um, one of those was that two independent non-executive directors be appointed to the board and that never happened mm. and term limits for board members that never happened so even when they commissioned their own report they didn't follow through on the recommendations but the questions that are asked and you would mm. imagine if i mean the fai have said it was to do with the bridging loan yeah you'd imagine you know that would be a straightforward answer to that listen because we've waited a couple of weeks as it is john delaney is no longer the chief executive mm. is he on the board well, he's, he's, he's not on the board. But so the position does, does, does he have to appear before you next week? Well, he would because he was, he was in charge in all of this. You know, he was the CEO. But the other question but he, is... But he, he's not the CEO. No, but he's, he's now executive vice president. Yes, but he's and not on the board, is he? It, well, he can, this, is a, this is the issue too. Um, the FAI have, that crea- have created that new job for John mm. Delaney, but it allows him to attend board meetings without being a member of the board. But because he's not a member of the board, he doesn't have to appear in front of the committee, does he? Well, well he, I mean, he, he, he has confirmed that he would attend. And when we originally asked, because bear in mind, I think this was our fourth, the committee's mm. fourth request, they had, um, we had asked them initially three times prior to this, and it never materialised. Mm. So from the very first request, he was invited to attend. You know, but he, mm. I mean... 
what but, reason but technically would he not have to attend, te- given te- that he was going... Te- technically speaking, though, I mean, uh, uh, I'm not uh, asking if he should or if he has said he would, but technically speaking, he's not obliged to appear before you. No, but he certainly has a responsibility, okay. given that he's been CEO. Well, I think everybody would agree with that, years, and there's some yeah. very serious questions, uh, but uh, uh, that... Uh, may or may not transpire to be a problem. It's just an interesting point. Uh, but uh, if he does appear before you next week, I'm sure you'll be asking, why did he give this loan of 100000 to the FAI? Because John Tracy and Kieran Mulvey seem to be suggesting yesterday that it wasn't necessary. If they'd come to them and said that there's this cash flow problem, that payments are being deferred and so on, and that the money is there, just hasn't come in yet, uh, they'd have helped them out. Well, they had said that, that, you know, had they let us know, had they been up front and said it was that they would have tried to assist them. But under the terms and conditions, uh, the Sport Ireland's terms and conditions for grant approval, um, they you have to let uh, Sport Ireland know in writing mm. without delay if there's any deterioration in your financial position. But did you hear it the same fact- way, that the loan was unnecessary? No matter how bad the cash flow problem was, it wasn't necessary. All they had to do was say to Sport Ireland and most likely they would have got the funding uh, as a, a bridging loan or whatever way it was granted to them uh, from Sport Ireland. Well, what they, what my interpretation of what they'd said was that, look, had they come to us and told us as, as they're required to do, you know, that, yeah. that they were in financial difficulty, that we would have looked at helping them out, you know, now whether that would, you, you just don't mm. know, but that's, that's what they said. That what I think the big thing is and why they was didn't this at a time, in the first instance when was, they were required under the terms and conditions. Was this at a time when two million belonging to Dundalk FC was on the FAI uh, books? Was that from the UEFA? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, well, this is yeah. This was two thousand and seventeen. But there's a whole series of questions. That money was delayed in being paid to Dundalk, wasn't it? Yes, yes. I think it was for 11 months or something. And at the at same the time, time, John Delaney is giving €100,000. Can you make any sense of it? Well, you know, that's that's the questions that we have to have answered. You know, um, you're, you know, part of that would be, like, is, is it actually credible that the FAI would be in such a dire financial situation that it, they'd have to resort to, to a €100,000 loan from their CEO's personal bank account, you know? And if they were in such a dire... Um, financial circumstances, what, then why didn't they approach uh, Sport Ireland, you know, instead of not informing them as they're required to do mm. and not recording the loan in their accounts and not furnishing Sport Ireland with um, that information? Yeah. Um, There's a whole series of... I know, I'm just trying to think what John Delaney might say to you. He's the only person, I suppose, who knows, regardless of Mm. a report from his hours or whatever, uh, he's going to appear before the committee and undoubtedly he'll be able to explain why he gave €100,000 to tie the association over. Well, that's, I mean, that's that's what he, the the onus is on um, John Delaney and the members of the board when they come before the committee um, next week, and it's it's the onus on them to convince myself and other committee members, but they've also to to um, Sport Ireland, you know, that they have to um, they're not satisfied that you know no proper transparent explanation has been given yet, and it's up to them, the FAI, to because it's it's Sporting Ireland that will decide what sanctions to impose, you know. So um, they they literally have to. I mean, they have to be transparent. They're in receipt of substantial 
public funding on an annual basis, 2.7 million. Mm. And to, you know, to fail to comply with the terms and conditions of grant approval is a very serious issue. Has the FAI said it will appear before the board? The named members of the board, before the committee rather, have the named members of the board agreed to appear before your committee? Well, yes, it's, it's been established that they are coming next Wednesday. And they've said that John, De, you know, John Delaney and members of the board. All right. Well, I think there'll be a lot of interest in it. Uh, do you think uh, that we'll have the answers uh, that uh, to the questions people are, are asking today come next Wednesday? Well, I mean, you hope so, because it, it raises even more questions, you know, because they've had several weeks now. And we have requested as a committee have requested the information. We haven't got that yet. Sport Ireland have requested it several times now. Um, they haven't got it yet. So you would hope, I mean, if if they don't come with all of that information next week, then, you know, Sport Ireland are going to have to look at um, what sanctions they impose. You know, they're going to have to decide... What, what are the what options to them? They could cut funding, the FAI? Or? They, could cut, they could cut the funding. Um, I would be of the opinion that... Um, if if the board are not forthcoming, you know, and give the, the the good enough sufficient answers and you know a transparent explanation that the board should go, mm. because if the funding is cut, the funding that the board should go, should I say, and funding should continue with the mm. new board, because the problem is that if if the funding is cut, it's the the likes of the field sports grants which develops the, the grassroots. Well, it's nearly three like, million euro and a year. Sports and women, mm. women, you know, women in sport as well. So it's it's the grassroots kind of that's that's punished. And why should mm. they be punished when they need their hand act or partnered? But most definitely, if that information is not forthcoming and if they can't, you know, the onus is on them, as I said, to, to provide that. And if Sport Ireland is not satisfied, there has to be sanctions because okay. this just can't go unchecked. You know, it sets... It sets a precedent and we need to just for once and for all just get these things like by the scruff of the neck and, you know, mm. make sure that the message goes out there that if you're in receipt of public funding, you have to adhere to the terms and conditions and you have to have good governance and, you know, mm-hmm. be in line with everything that you're supposed to do. OK, well, no doubt we'll get the answers to the questions next week. we we'll leave it there for the moment. Uh, that's uh, Sinn Féin's <laughs> spokesperson. On sport, Imelda Munster, who's uh, TD for Louth. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Piers Doherty spoke to us uh, yesterday about uh, the stinging criticism Sinn Féin legislation is uh, coming under, which would prevent the sale of mortgages uh, to vulture funds without uh, the permission of uh, the mortgage holders. Uh, the Central Bank, uh, the European Central Bank and uh, the Department of Finance have all voiced their criticism. Indeed, the Department has suggested that the legislation may be unconstitutional. On Friday of this week, uh, tomorrow at in other words, uh, Sinn Féin MEP Matt Carthy will be in uh, the West Court Hotel in Drogheda for a public meeting on vulture funds and he joins us now. And good morning to you and thanks uh, for doing so uh, this morning. Uh, there's uh, a, a long list of people uh, who are opposed to the Sinn Féin position on all of this. Well, there's a list of people, but they are, it has to be said, the usual suspects. There are people who have a vested interest in the status quo. This is um, a 
part of a series of engagements that we've been holding across my own constituency, but also in other constituencies around the whole issue of housing and vulture funds. And essentially it goes down to the approach and priorities of government. One of the difficulties and challenges we have as a political party when we're talking about things like our health services Mm. is that people don't really believe that it's possible to have um, a, a really effective healthcare system in Ireland because we've never had one. But it's different on housing because in housing, we've had policies in the past that worked. I often cite my own example. When my mother moved back to Cartmore Cross with myself and my siblings when we were very young, um, we would have had nothing. She was a single mother. Um, we moved to Cartmore Cross and we rented a house And within a year, we were offered a council house. It wasn't a free house. My mother paid rent in accordance Mm. with her income. So when she was on social welfare, she paid low rent. When we went to start going to school, um, she got a part-time job. Her rent went up a little bit. And when we completed school or went into secondary school, she had a full-time job. And her rent went up accordingly. And when we started going out and earning a few euro ourselves, the rent went up uh, accordingly. And in time, my mother was able to purchase that house the people who are in the exact same position as my mother and our family were in ni- the late 1980s and early 1990s are today living in their cars, well, living in hotel rooms. Um, well, what about people like your mother, though, uh, who try their best and pay their bills? Uh, should your mother have paid for the house next door and your neighbours? Nobody's suggesting that she should. Let's remember... But that is, is the, the problem, is not this when is, people are not paying their mortgage, somebody the, else pays it. No, well, the point is, and this is why I'm trying to give the holistic view of this, at some point, um, a Fianna Fáil government decided Mm. to shift the emphasis on housing away from public provision and having a public housing strategy into the private sector, where initially it's starting off by, instead of councils building houses, instead the state subsidised private rented accommodation. When it came to a point where we then had a housing crash, um, rather than actually... Um, addressing a need by providing um, housing, as Sinn Féin advocated at the time, which would have stimulated the economy and mm. brought us out of recession. But, but, but we're um, all living, instead, on, on, we're all living our, under the uh, results of all of that, Matt, uh, and a lot of people pay their mortgage, and they pay all of their mortgage. Uh, and if somebody and, isn't paying their mortgage, well then, somebody else has to pay it for them. But let's, let's um, deal with um, the, the holistic point again, if I can, Michael, because mm. what happened at that point was that our government decided rather than try and deal with the underlying issues in our housing market, they went out abroad and actually encouraged vulture funds to come in to buy up distressed property um, mortgages. So let's remember this. Yeah, and um, what is the central bank being saying? If they didn't buy us, them up, if they us, didn't buy them up, us. there would be an onus on uh, the domestic institutions to deal with those non-performing loans. And the only way that they the could domestic. do it if they couldn't sell it to vulture funds would be to repossess the homes. That would put people uh, out in the streets. The, 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 vulture, the vulture funds and the banks, or the banks in particular, have already been paid. They've been paid by all of us regardless of what our mortgage status is, to the tune of 64 billion euro, a debt that's hanging over every one of us on our on our. So I don't, need to, so I don't need to pay my mortgage then, do I not? No, what we need to oh, do... Okay. Is, oh, OK. God, what, I didn't know that. That's great. I pay, no, I pay my mortgage, you pay your mortgage. My right. belief is that anybody who's in a position to pay their full mortgage does so. The truth of the matter is that we have a situation which is entirely unfair, where banks aren't engaging with their customers in terms of offering realistic options to them. They're not offering any write-downs at all. And yet, on the same hand, they're actually offering and selling distressed loans in some instances, but in some cases, mortgages that are fully up-to-date in terms of their payments, 
to vulture funds at a huge discount. That's inherently unfair. And regardless of what somebody's position is regarding paying their um, mortgage, mm. they see something unfair where somebody is dealing with their bank, trying to constructively engage with their bank and trying to get the bank to offer them terms that they can actually meet, which will mm. put, allow them to stay in their home. Instead, and they're actually saying, no, we won't talk to you, but we will actually sell it to a multinational corporation. Yeah, and it is the rest of us. of what you owe. And it is the rest of us who pay our mortgage that pay for that discount. Uh, and there's no doubt about that. And to that's, the vulture, to uh, the vulture funds. So to we're to the vulture funds, they're, they're benefiting from us, uh, the, the people who pay. Uh, but, and we're paying. But the we're reason... Paying. But the reason for that is the reason for that is that people have been allowed to default or miss payments or uh, not uh, fulfil the terms of their contract in one way or another for three, five, seven, ten years. The reality is that it is all of us, including those who pay their mortgage, who are paying over and over again. Because, as I say, we bailed out the bank to the tune of sixty-four billion euro. We're now because we own these banks. We're watching our assets, if you like, in the terms of these loans being sold off at huge discounts to these multinational corporations and a huge transfer of wealth in the Irish state away from Irish people and Irish institutions to foreign companies. Plus, what happens if a vulture fund purchases um, a property and evicts the family you are in? That family then becomes an additional boarding on the state. So we're paying again. And all the while, we have policy that is skewed in favour of banks and vultures and financial institutions and all the while our housing crisis becomes worse. What we're arguing for isn't that people who can afford to pay their mortgage simply get away with not doing it. It's my belief and I deal with lots Mm. of people. There is nobody who willingly goes into mortgage default, not anybody with an ounce of sense because anybody who has dealt with those families who are in that situation will see the stress and anxiety that they are under and the attitude of the banks and our government is tough luck. We're all paying the cost for that. Our society is paying the cost for that. And there is another way and that's what we're going to be outlining in the West Court. People can meet with you tomorrow, 8 o'clock in the West Court if uh, they wish to discuss this with you. We leave it there for the moment, Matt. Thank you very much indeed. Matt Carthy, Sinn Féin, MEP. Michael Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns joins us with some of the calls and text messages that have come to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. John from Drogheda phoned in. He's a little confused, Michael. He wants to know, is there now another extension beyond May? Is the April 12th deadline now definitely deferred? No. No, okay. (laughs) No, it's not. Uh, The uh, Commons voted uh, by that slim majority of one one last night uh, that Mrs May would have to come back uh, to MPs who could vote for an extension rather than to leave without a deal and they could decide how long that extension would be. But uh, as uh, Karen Coleman explained to us a little bit earlier on, that's on the assumption that the EU would be agreeable to it. Very good summary from your commentator, says Seamus. But even she who is in the thick of it doesn't know what the final outcome will be. It's getting very worrying for those of us who have businesses on the border, he yeah. says. Well, who does know the way it's going to end up at this stage? Theresa thinks that the Brits are playing a good game and you cannot trust them. The empire will rule, she warns. Fools we all are. Mm. 
There you go. Yeah, I'm not sure I see it that way, but uh, perhaps she's right because, uh, as said earlier, who knows how this is going to pan out. Mairead phoned in and she is wondering that now that Theresa May has run out of support within her own party and, her, and amongst her so-called allies and has now had to turn to Labour, that maybe, maybe, just maybe, there'll be a better chance now of there being a second referendum. And she's hopeful that ordinary UK citizens will have seen sense mm. with all that has gone on and they'll vote to remain this time around. Mm. And then it'll all be over. Mm. Yeah, possibly. Yes. What puzzles me, Michael, says Eileen, is that if there is so much acrimony in the Tory party, why haven't they got rid of Theresa May already and let somebody else give it a go? <laughs> you have heard of poison chalices. <laughs> Uh, Who'd mm, want it? (laughs) Mary is wondering how long that we are going to, how long are we going to allow the UK to dictate what is going on? There's so much uncertainty because they can't make up their minds and there seems to be one deferral after another Mm. and that's not going to help if they can't decide. Mm. They should be given a date, a final date and that is Mm. that. If they don't agree a deal, then let them go and we can just get on with things. This cannot keep dragging on and on and on. Mm. Well, I think to some degree that is what's happening. I think the UK has tried in many respects to dictate how this proceeds. Uh, At the outset, people were saying they want their cake and eat it. Uh, That didn't happen, so they've come back, they've negotiated, uh, they've uh, gone back, that's been rejected, they've come back, they've renegotiated, they've gone back and so on and so forth. And that went on for every day, nearly three years at this stage, and they're now in a very, very compromised position, and they are looking at a cliff edge on the 12th of April, which is a week from tomorrow. That's right. John from Navin phoned in this morning. Offer me a bet, Michael. Yeah. Imagine okay. of a morning mm. to bet him a tenner that there'll be no bet Brexit. Mm. Even I wouldn't do that with my tenner now. <laughs> okay. Mm. Because he reckons that at the end of the whole thing, they won't leave at mm. all. Yeah, I don't think they will. You were saying, you've been saying that for yeah, a while. Yeah, well, I mean, I, you know, I, I don't think it's going to be the Brexit that we feared from the outset. Now, God knows things can happen accidentally or uh, because of unforeseen events or whatever. Uh, but uh, I, I really don't think uh, that it's just too hard to contemplate uh, how uh, people would be impoverished and penalised as a result of bad decisions. Uh, and I think that if there is a Brexit, it won't be what people understood to be Brexit when they voted for it. Uh, but uh, it's quite possible that this will be delayed so long that people will forget it was ever happening. OK, moving to the mm. FAI, a couple of comments in relation to that. Mary wants to know why if John Delaney felt his workload was so bad or so heavy and that he was finding it difficult to cope with then why didn't he have the wherewithal to go to his superiors and complain about it? Isn't that what most people would do in this scenario? So why didn't he have the... If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Okay, I have two new obsessions that I need to share with you. Impress No Glue Press-On Mannies and Impress Press-On Falsies Lashes. Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash press on and use code press on 25 at checkout for 25% off impress manicure and press on falsies. Hop on to do that rather than stay struggling for so long. Well, I suppose he did and they commissioned a report and the report recommended splitting uh, his role with uh, a newly established role and that's what they've done. Okay, Pat from Navin phoned in, says that why don't the FAI come clean about why the loan of 100000 was given by John Delaney mm. to the FAI? Yeah, well, the FAI said they will and they'll be happy to do so after they receive the report because it's being audited by Mazars as we speak. A text from a Rovers supporter who suggests asking the chairpersons of both Drogheda United and Dundalk FC if they support John Delaney and if they do, why they support him. So. Mm. Well, I suppose it's because he's uh, the executive president of the FAI uh, and was the chief executive of uh, the FAI and uh, this is an ongoing process. In relation to the interview with Pierce Doherty yesterday regarding vulture funds and the so-called no consent, no sale bill, we got uh, Shane got in touch uh, with a lengthy comment. I'll try and read out some of it. Bank selling loans is a good thing. He feels the banks aren't going to let you keep a house you're not paying for. Same as they won't let you keep a car you're not paying for. Same as any finance company won't let you keep any product you'd financed that you're not keeping up repayments on. So the bank can either go through the overly drawn out repossession process and spend a lot of time and money dealing with that end of things which will end up costing them a fortune which means it would cost everyone a fortune as these costs will be passed on to the customers or they can offload the troubled debts to other companies to deal with. It makes sense to me people in Ireland are getting nailed to the wall with high interest rates and every fella that pulls the anti-repossession stunt is sticking everyone else with extra debt to cover the costs of dealing with them. I haven't seen many good arguments against these vulture funds. I appreciate some people get into trouble with money and can fall behind. Can just as easily happen to myself. But you can't expect the bank to just give you a house because of falling on hard times. If that was the case, we would all be getting mortgages and strategically falling on hard times to milk it. Okay. 
Moving from that then to dog fouling, a couple more comments on that still coming in. Louise from Drogheda says that the concentration on dogs on the show on Tuesday was a bit alarming and biased. What about horse fouling on the beaches? What about men urinating on the streets? Mm. We should maybe be talking about those things too, she says. Yeah, okay. Alyssa, uh, <laughs> Alyssa. Does, does it make dog fouling <laughs> right? I, I, I mean, I'm not arguing against that, uh, but I'm sure two wrongs don't make a right. I'm sure that's not what she was saying either. Okay. Alyssa, another listener from Drogheda, all the talk about dog fouling, but what about the pit bulls, uh, huskies and alizations that are walking around the streets with no muzzles? This is against the law and very mm. dangerous. You should also be touching on that too, Michael. Yeah, we do. That, we it? do from time to time. I suppose these issues uh, come up every now and then, uh, but yeah, the 10 dangerous breeds should be muzzled and on a lead. Frances from Doha to say she was very hurt by your comments on Tuesday about dogs. Can you explain what you meant about by saying morons? Are the dogs morons? I didn't I think- say morons. This this is just what she's mm. phoned in to say. Yeah, but I didn't say morons. Okay. I said the owners were brain dead. Okay. Uh, the owners who uh, don't pick up after That's them. That's right. I said they were brain dead, uh, that they have no appreciation of other people or their environment. Okay. Bill says, if the dog wardens could approach people out walking their dogs and ask them to produce a bag mm. to show that they are picking up, and then if they mm. can't produce, will then issue... Yeah, but I I think that's a a bylaw that's in place uh, as we speak. Stephen says, I don't mind people taking their dogs into a derelict field or off tracks where people don't walk and play. But in my own estate, a guy just lets his dog out. It craps on the field where my kids play and they come in with it all over their shoes. Mm. It's dangerous for children to be exposed to and it's difficult to prove. It's also difficult to police as well because you have to hire someone to just sit there to catch one person. A tough call. Yeah, well, I I suppose he is a moron, isn't he? All right, uh, hold that thought for a moment. Uh, We'll uh, go back uh, to Brexit. uh, And uh, what was that comment earlier on about why don't they just get rid of Mrs May? Uh, We were saying it was a a poison chalice. You've been asking people locally uh, if they were to meet Mrs May, what is it that they would have to say to the British Prime Minister? I'd say you're a very strong woman and everybody hates you. And uh, I I think she did the best she could for her. If we come out with the agreement, I think Ireland would be great. But, uh, well, she has 10 the other side of the border are not going to agree at any stage to anything. That's it. So she's up against it? Oh, she's up against it. I don't know how she's putting up with it. I'd be long gone. I'd just get rid of her. It's time she went. Gone? Gone. Definitely gone. Are you not happy with her? Definitely not. No, not happy with her at all. Not with the Brexit at all. No. Disaster. Time to go. I would say, listen, it's dragging on far too long now. Will you go and get it sorted out? You know, and grow a backbone and sort them all out in Parliament. That's what I'd say to her, you know. Do you, are you worried about it? I am. I am indeed. Because I go up and down to Newry a lot as well. And do I need a passport now to get through to Newry? What's it going to be a soldiers at the border, whatever. I am bloody worried about it. Yes, so I am. I tell her that altogether. <laughs> she goes at me slow as she stops. Tell her to get lost. You're not happy with her? No, because if a border goes up again, we'll have the trouble back in the north again, and we don't want that. Do you remember the times of the troubles? I do, yeah. She's made an absolute nutter mess of this whole thing, so um, she needs to put people in their place and show some strength and um, either not do it or do it one or the other. <laughs> really fed up. I think everyone's fed up listening to it. Um, It's on the news, it's on the radio, it's in the papers. 
Um, every time you go home, it's a family discussion. So I say I think we'll all be glad when it's over and done with. I'd say you've made a complete balls of the whole system. I says you've affected more countries and you've just brought distress to uh, worldwide distress to a lot of people, not knowing what's uh, going to happen. And uh, we're living near the, the north. Uh, and uh, Colourville, near Colourville, and we have relations down there. And, you know, it's just, it's just a nightmare. Distressing everybody. For what? Not knowing. And not knowing. This, and especially for older people or people with disabilities and everything like that. Everybody's affected. It's not just, it's not just people that is mobile. It's everybody. I wouldn't say much not, very nice things about her anyway. Are you at not happy? Moment, no, I'm not happy with her. She's affected up England and she's affected up Ireland too. At the present moment, anyway. That's my thinking of it. Like, it, it, she, they, they, what they call it, I think they should go back to the country again and have another, another, vote. another vote, definitely. Because my son is living over there and he reckons that the majority of people didn't even know what they were voting for at the time. I would say that she should be harder on her MP. She should have taken more action. She should have taken more control of them. And if she had, have, she might have got more respect from her colleagues and got what she wanted. So that's what you say, toughen up a bit. Toughen up a bit, yeah. Just be harder and don't be so soft and don't be doing what everybody else wants. Be a leader. All right, we'll send those messages uh, to number 10 Downing Street on behalf of uh, the local people who took some time out to speak with Marie Kearns for us. And thank you to them for that. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Now, the Minister for Health, Simon Harris, is uh, to appear before the Oireachtas Health Committee in uh, the coming days uh, to discuss why there is a backlog of up to nearly 80,000 smear tests and delays of uh, up to 33 weeks for a result. This follows on from a meeting of the Health Committee yesterday when uh, representatives from Cervical Check and uh, the HSE were before it. We were joined by a member of uh, that committee, Louise O'Reilly, who's Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health. And uh, it was uh, the information that came to you from uh, the former director of cervical check, Grania Flannelly, that is dominating uh, the discourse at uh, this stage. She said that this delay was inevitable to uh, all uh, accounts. Uh, how was that communicated to you? Well, she sent us in a submission um, and she didn't appear in front of the Health Committee, although I, I am hopeful that she will at some point uh, be able to because I think we need to, to actually question Miss um, Flannelly. We need to find out from her exactly what the sequence is. I mean, she does outline in her submission um, that she relayed concerns she had. I mean, one of the concerns is that the offer in the way that it was made by the minister. So the minister under uh, responding to to the fact that women were were concerned, this happened immediately after uh, Vicky Phelan uh, made her announcement on the steps of the High Court. So if you recall, and and I think I I, I spoke to you at the time, Michael, if you recall, there was a lot of concern. um, You know, women were very, very concerned about the prospect of having um, a um, a missed result with their cervical smears. And so what the minister did, um, and he did this by tweet, which, you know, I mean, that, that's a Fine Gael thing. It's not something, uh, it's, it's, it's not what I think should be done in terms of communicating an important message. But on Saturday, the 28th of April, the minister tweeted that uh, any woman who wanted a repeat smear test by way of reassurance would get one and the state would foot the bill. Mm. Um, he has subsequently said, on a number of occasions on the record and in response to parliamentary questions that he was not given any advice by anyone and neither was his officials that this was a bad idea. Now, 
if you fast forward mm. uh, 11 and a half months, we see that there are 78,000 women waiting, some of them up to 33 weeks. The system has effectively been overwhelmed. So what the minister did was he tweeted uh, that any woman that needed a, a repeat test by way of reassurance would get one. But he didn't do his homework. So he hadn't checked out to see if the capacity was there. He hadn't mm. checked out to see if this was going to be feasible or if indeed this uh, this should be phased in. What he simply did uh, was he tweeted that, um, you know, any, any woman that wanted one would get a free repeat smear test. Mm. Unfortunately, because he didn't do his homework, because this minister uh, favours the soundbite over the hard work every single day of the week, because he didn't do his homework, we now have 78,000 women waiting, some of them up to 33 weeks. But the key in this is that he said he received no contrary advice and his officials mm-hmm. received no contrary advice. Okay, and that is directly contradicted by Gronya Flanley in her submission. That directly contradicted yesterday. and she gives specific incidents of how she went about advising uh, the minister. She does. Uh, she does but, and she's very clear about that, that but, she made it known in the mm-hmm. Department of Health. But, the minister has said repeatedly he was not told. But just go back to when the minister tweeted this news that any woman who was worried or concerned and wanted a second test would be mm-hmm. given a, a, another test and uh, that that would be free of charge. Did you not welcome that at the time? Absolutely. But I assumed that he had checked the capacity was there. No woman, uh, myself included, who uses the service, and I do, would welcome uh, a 33-week delay. I mean, the assumption is the man is the Minister for Health, Michael. Do you know what I mean? He's not supposed to be working this out in the back of an envelope. He's paid a lot of money to do a really important job. It is entirely reasonable that any woman, be she a politician or, or, or whatever a profession, would assume if the Minister is making that offer that he has done uh, that he has done his homework, that he has established that the capacity exists. Bear in mind, this uh, service was outsourced so the assumption would have been at the time that the minister would have checked with the laboratories or checked with his officials in the department uh, to ensure that this could be done. I really, uh, I, I don't think it's credible to think that anyone would have expected such poor performance uh, from the minister. Of course, we know mm. uh, subsequently that this minister is not great on, uh, he's not great on detail, he's not great on follow-up, he's not great at the LMAS either, uh, as we see with the overrun on the children's hospital. But he really should not have put out that tweet at that time if he wasn't sure about the capacity he should have checked. And it now appears that he received or his officials received or his department mm. received advice to the contrary. But the, 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 the minister's version is different and the detail of this is different in his mind in that, first of all, he says he didn't get his advice and second of all, he says he did what everybody wanted him to do. Uh, let's assume for a moment that the roles were reversed and you were to be in his position and get the advice that Gráinne Flannelly says she gave, what would you have done? Well, the easiest thing for for the Minister to have done in that scenario was simply to put out proper information into the public domain to advise women that should they need a consultation with their doctor, that that consultation will be provided for them and they should go and seek that reassurance with their general practitioners. The fact that he said any woman that wants it is going to access a uh, repeat smear test, that was where the difficulty arose because making an appointment to have a chat with your GP, that's not, uh, you know, I mean, that, that that's a different thing. Also, the minister could and should have checked that the capacity could be sourced. I mean, now we have nearly a year later, we hear from Damien McCallion in the HSE and he tells us that they are searching 
all over the world for additional capacity. If that wasn't there, all that has happened is those women now are waiting 33 weeks for their repeat smear test results. That's not reassuring to anybody. Mm. And equally, we now have women being contacted because their samples have expired because they've been left in the system too long. Those women now have to go for another smear test. That's not going to help women. That's not the right thing to do. The Minister for Health has paid a lot of money to do a very important job. You know, it shouldn't be beyond him to do that job well. You cannot run the health service by tweet. You can't govern by soundbite, much and all as this as this government try. What you have to do is do the homework. The minister should have moved to reassure women that he was going to put capacity into the system and then they could have the repeat smear test if they wanted. He could have put his efforts into an information campaign mm. to ensure that, uh, that women's minds were put at rest. And I say this to you, Michael, as someone who uses the service, Screaming saves lives. Sure. I have seen it. It sure. is absolutely imperative. Yeah. But the and confidence I, I, in the system is being rocked and that's not mm. fair on and women. I, I must say I don't like politicians making announcements by tweets, whether that's Simon Harris or Donald Trump, uh, but it is mm. just a, a, another way of making an announcement in the same way that maybe you'd select a newspaper to run a, a story announcing such a, a measure or send an email to all media or go on uh, the... Uh, plinth of uh, the doll and make the mm-hmm. announcement uh, in front of cameras but he made the announcement so it's not particularly relevant that he made it by tweet it doesn't mean that he's governing by tweet well, the, annou- no no but the, the announcement was made that's how he made limited the number I know, of but I mean, that you can use you can't convey I know. Uh, important information by Twitter sure uh, and, and, and he and, was and, attempting and, to do that and, and I, I think that's a bit glib and I accept I that but I mean the minister isn't here and I suppose we need to bring some balance to the conversation he made an announcement the question is what what was it he was announcing and was it prudent or was it incompetent to ignore the advice of the clinical director of cervical check and that is in essence the charge against the minister today the minister says he didn't because he didn't receive that advice but can be can it be established now as to whether he did receive the advice or not because uh, Gronje Flannelly says uh, that uh, she made a number of phone calls and she gives times and dates and so on uh, can they be checked to see if the advice was passed on to Simon Harris. I think that's what we need to do. But we also need to ask, and the Minister needs to answer the question, um, you know, why did he not seek this advice? So let, let's assume for a moment that the, the, the Minister's mm. version stacks up and we've yet to, to, to have sure. evidence okay. that it does. But why did he not ask? It's a big, it's a big deal. It's a, um, obviously, he would have known that the, uh, the heightened sense of, um, or the, the, the heightened focus via the media because of what had happened to Vicky Phelan was probably going to cause him. I and he says in his tweet that he had been contacted by many women. So he knew that this was going to be uh, a serious increase in the number of tests that were getting sent. He Before he sent the tweet, regardless of your opinion of whether or not a tweet is a good or a bad idea, mm-hmm. but before he sent out the tweet, he didn't seek that advice. So what Grania Flanley is saying is, had anyone... Uh, that that she made that advice known once it was it was relayed to her that this was uh, this was being considered in the Department of Health that she made the Department of Health know. But did you know? I mean, did, did the minister not ask his uh, his officials? He was very clear in the response to a parliamentary question where he said neither I nor my officials received advice to the contrary. So if that advice was given. Um, and and they they're saying they didn't mm. receive it, but I'd be asking the question: 
Well, why in the name of God did he not go looking to check? You know, what we're talking about a system is, is that it, let it, down is, women is, at the is, time, and he, he's just perpetuating is that. It, is it a question of degree? Uh, uh, which degree of culpability there is? Uh, because it seems that regardless of how this came about, the minister created another crisis. In trying to tackle a crisis, he created a separate crisis, the crisis that we're in today with nearly 80,000 women waiting 33 weeks for a result. And that's as a result of the action he took to appease or to bring some sense of uh, security uh, to the women who were concerned about the uh, screening service in the first place. Uh, Whether he got advice or ignored the advice or uh, didn't get the advice uh, the outcome is still the same is it not and at the end of the day the book falls with the minister the book stops with the minister and uh, it's his incompetence that has led us to this uh, as I said you know he has a very important and a very responsible job he has a massive team uh, working with him you know he doesn't want for advisors or officials or people to uh, ensure that he can be properly kept informed and yes we see that, you know, despite all of this, despite all of the help that he has, despite the fact that he is surrounded, as I've said, by advisors and officials, he still managed uh, to ensure that by his actions, the system is now, the system is broken. I mean, you're, if you're waiting 33 weeks for the result of the smear test, Michael, I mean, that's an awful thing mm. to do to women because for those 33 weeks, you mightn't be thinking about it every minute of every day, but it's certainly there in the back of your mind. And you certainly are, you know, your mind is not put at rest until you get the results. And uh, I mean, what the minister has done is he either didn't bother to seek advice, which is very, very worrying, uh, or he ignored the, the advice, which is also very worrying. And he has landed us in a situation now where tens of thousands of women are going to have to wait up to 33 weeks to get the results of their smear test to put their mind at rest in an atmosphere where, I mean, we, we are seeing high profile, um, you know, the, the, the high profile of the women impacted by this and the people in the um, the families of the 221 group. And, you know, in that atmosphere, what the minister has done is he has simply contributed to the fear that women have. And I've said it on your programme before, Michael, I'll say it again, if you don't mind, screening saves lives. It's mm. really important for women to engage with the system, much in all as the system is not perfect. We would be urging women, and I would, as I said, a user of the service yep. myself, I would urge women to go and get screened to talk to their doctor and if they are symptomatic to be reassured that anyone who has uh, the the symptoms of cervical Mm. cancer can go and talk to their doctor and they will be fast-tracked. They won't be part of the normal programme. They can insist and ensure that they are fast-tracked if they are symptomatic. And this is the message that needs to go out. It's just regrettable that uh, the minister adds to the confusion and adds to the undermining of confidence Mm. in the system because it's not fair and it's not fair on the women who use it. Uh, And I think the HSE says uh, that because it takes so long for cervical cancer to develop even if the results are 33 weeks uh, in being returned uh, it will mean that the cancer will be caught in time to treat uh, in an appropriate way we leave it there for the moment and thank you indeed uh, for joining us thank you indeed Sinn Féin's spokesperson on health Louise O'Reilly 
Finnefall's education spokesperson Thomas Byrne told us on uh, the programme yesterday about a motion he was bringing to the Dáil which is calling on uh, the government to collect information on the number of children who are homeless who don't have addition, uh, uh, access to additional supports provided by the Department of Education and to make a uh, €5 million Euro fund available to help those children with their education as well as implementing the recommendations of the Children's Rights Alliance Homeworks report. Uh, the motion went to the Dáil yesterday, was rejected by the government and we'll hear just a short piece of what the Minister for Education, Joe McHugh, had to say. I acknowledge that the private member's motion contains of number of, a number of accurate statements about the effects of uh, homelessness on children in the educational context particularly the fact that school can be constant in their lives and can offer a place of security, friendship, support and familiarity, which equally importantly allow them, allowing them to continue their education. And I would like to acknowledge the CRA, the Children's Rights Alliance, for their work and the research they've done carried out to date. However, I also have a number of issues with the motion as put forward by the private members. The private mo- members' motion suggests that there is no government policy to cater for the educational needs of children who are homeless or living in emergency accommodation. Uh, that neither the action plan for education nor my department statement of strategy 19 to 21 deals with the issue. This is not correct. The statement of strategy specifically references that my department works with the Department of Housing, Planning and Local Government to support a coordinated approach to homelessness as part of the Homeless Interagency Group. One of the goals of the statement of strategy of my department is to advance the progress of learners at risk of educational disadvantage to support them to achieve their potential. This includes all children at risk of educational disadvantage, including those experiencing homelessness without labelling children unnecessarily. The Action Plan for Education 2019 sets out that innovative approaches to improving the outcomes for learners at greatest risk of education advantage will be explored. Again, this includes all children. Tanya Ward is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Children's Rights Alliance and On the Line. Good morning to you, Tanya, and uh, thanks for joining us. What do you make of the argument uh, the Minister appears to be making, which is uh, that if you were to implement uh, the spirit of uh, this motion, which is in line with the Children's Rights Alliance Homeworks report, that you would be discriminating in favour of homeless children over other children who were also disadvantaged? Well, I suppose it, it depends on your overall approach and how you deal with the needs of children. I suppose what came up in our research report um, was that the researchers went out and I talked to families directly, uh, who about 20 families who were experiencing homelessness, uh, and they asked them about their experiences, and they also spoke to schools and teachers who were working with the families. And on one side, what you were hearing from the children and from the parents was that uh, the the experience of being homelessness was a huge disruption to their lives. Um, It was very disturbing for a lot of young children, particularly when it went for a long period of time. Some of the families were living in small hotel B&B accommodation where young children had nowhere to crawl. Children were eating their breakfast off the side of a bed sometimes. Often children weren't getting to eat their breakfast at all. And what was happening was that um, children were arriving into school hungry. And teachers would say it was the, for the first time in their lives that they'd seen children arriving hungry with, no, with, with, with dirty clothes. And what was happening for these children, particularly as the homeless experience moved on, uh, continued on, was they were becoming more isolated and withdrawn in their classes. They were falling behind. They're starting to miss days of school. And when a child, I suppose, loses their motivation um, 
and starts becoming depressed and, and low and sees their parents being very stressed. It's very hard for them to do well in school. Um, you know, we obviously do have a, a, a national plan around disadvantaged education, but what the teachers were telling our researchers was that they had received no direction or guidance about how they were supposed to meet the needs of uh, children experiencing homelessness. Now, that's not to say that the schools weren't doing some really innovative and amazing work. And one of the, the most the best things coming through from the research was that the, the family said the school was the only bit of semblance of normality in their child's life. And that's why they were spending huge amounts of time crossing the city to try and get their child um, in, in, in their school. There was one story in, in the report where um, a mother talked about getting her child to the crash that he used to go to um, and that she would spend three hours walking around the city while he was in the crash. She said the crash loved him and he loved the crash and she just wanted to make sure that this is the one thing she could do in, in his life. So parents are doing an awful amount trying to continue their child's education. But the schools were saying, particularly the non-desh schools, there's a big difference between if you're in the desh scheme and the non-desh scheme. The desh scheme is, you know, you're in a designated area, you have homeschool liaison officers, you have extra budgets to respond to the needs of children. And those schools actually were saying they were kind of doing okay. They needed a bit of guidance from the department on, on, on how they should meet the needs of homeless children. But, but what it says they, on the tin, DASH standing for Delivering yeah. Equality of Opportunities in Schools. Yeah, yeah. And they could, so let's say if a child arrived, didn't have a lunch, they had they had a small budget, they could buy lunch. If a child arrived in dirty clothes, um, they could go and wash, the, they, could, they could get a school uniform for the child. The non-DASH schools were saying, They've no extra resources to deal with the needs. Teachers were saying they were buying lunches for children out of their own pocket. Um, principals were saying that they were um, contacting homeless accommodation services for, for families uh, and children in their schools because they, there was no one else to help them. They were trying to do the linking work. And what they said was, look, all we need is, is one good teacher or one one good homeschool liaison officer and that would make all the difference for us. We'd be able to help these children, we'd be able to keep them in school and get them through this crisis in their lives. Yeah, and that uh, special training for teachers uh, that you mentioned was part of the motion put forward by Fianna Fáil yesterday, but when you talk about children uh, arriving to school in clothes uh, that haven't been washed or if they're hungry for that matter. I suppose the point the minister was making is that it's not just homeless children who are in that situation. There's children who are in permanent accommodation who arrive in schools in similar situations. I mean, that's right. And, and uh, without a doubt, we should, you know, we, we believe in the Children's Rights Alliance that all children should have access to a hot meal in school. And that's every child in the country. Um, in countries with lower child poverty rates and better outcomes for children, that's what they do. Mm. But the difference here is you have a cohort of children and young people. This is the biggest homeless crisis per capita of the population in Europe. We now have nearly 4,000 children in homeless accommodation and many thousands more who've gone through the experience. And what we know from the evidence in the international research is that they are vulnerable to dropping out of school and they will have very poor outcomes uh, for the rest of their lives. And that's something we think we have to stop. Um, we, you can't allow the experience of being homelessness to tar a child's life for the rest of their lives. Mm. Uh, and all the schools want is just give them a little bit of extra resourcing, a bit of extra uh, capacity in terms of a teacher. And this is for the non-DESH schools. 
and they think they'll be able to, to, to address the needs of these children through this crisis. Just uh, on the subject of providing food through schools, uh, I was somewhat surprised to hear the Minister point out that we do that at a cost of €57.6 million Euro, uh, to some 250,000 children across over 1,500 schools. Uh, how much of an increase would you like to see on that? Um, well, I mean, it's an interesting question because uh, nobody has come up with the figures of what that would look like. But if you lived in, you lived in France, you lived in Finland, you lived in Germany, um, a hot school meal would be part of your school day. Uh, and actually, it's one way to get make sure children get access to a healthy meal. Um, and a lot of parents in those countries, they expect that. They expect that their child is going to get a healthy meal as part of the school day. What we know in Ireland is that um, even though we are providing uh, school meals in some schools, and some schools are doing some really extraordinary stuff, but you will see, you'll still hear stories back from schools is that they just don't have a big enough kitchen, they don't have big enough uh, catering facilities for children to eat together. Um, and you also hear about sometimes children aren't eating the healthy food uh, and then actually you have to start earlier you have to start when a child is in crash or in their early years giving them a hot meal with vegetables and getting them into healthy eating very young in life and that will that's a habit that will continue for the rest of their lives so we have a campaign at the moment No Child 2020 and it's something that we are, are asking the government to implement is that every child gets a, gets a hot school meal and that also would be in your crash in your Montessori, would be in your youth, your, your youth, your youth centre. Um, what we know from children, particularly very marginalised and disadvantaged children, children in the care system, they will tell us that the only time they got fed during the day was actually in school, mm. um, or it was actually in their youth, your youth centre actually fed them. Um, so it has, it can, it's you know, mm. feeding children, it's critical for their development. Yeah. It's, it's an absolute must. I, I imagine you'd agree, Tanya, that the solution is not to have homeless children uh, and uh, when I was speaking to Thomas Byrne yesterday uh, I was saying to him that uh, that fund of 5 million euro that Fianna Fáil called for uh, to be ring fenced ring fenced to help children through their education when they are homeless uh, was a, a lot of money because you wouldn't need anything at all if you didn't have homeless children homeless people in this country for that matter uh, and that is uh, the responsibility of politicians of all ilk that's right. I mean, and I mean, the, the challenge here is even though we have all these homeless hubs, a lot of money is going into the homeless hubs. And as without a doubt, they are better than being in a hotel because you can cook a meal. You, there's a washing machine. You can wash clothes for children. The downside is it still has a big impact on children. It still is a big disruption because children need certainty. They need to know they're safe. They need to know every day is going to be the same. That's, that's what's important for children. Um, and I think, you know, all the different measures are putting in place. It's obviously really welcome, but it hasn't been sufficient to actually address the housing crisis. I mean, the real answer, and this is what all the experts are saying, is that we have to have public housing, not just for people who would traditionally be on the social housing list, but would also be for low-income workers. And back when we dealt with our housing crisis back in the after the um, we had the tenements, that's what happens. The, the, the local councils built 
uh, housing on a large scale, sometimes up to 30%, and low income, people on low, income, low incomes were able to avail of it. And that's what happens in countries that are most successful in providing housing. Denmark, for example, 30% of the housing is provided um, by uh, the state and by the councils. And that's the model we have to get to if we're going to end this housing crisis. Okay, we'll leave there. Thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Tanya Ward, Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Children's Rights Alliance. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, following our conversation with uh, Sinn Féin's uh, spokesperson on health, Louise O'Reilly, a spokesperson for uh, the Minister for Health, uh, Simon Harris, has asked us uh, to point out that uh, the decision to provide for a free out-of-cycle smear test for concerned women a year ago was made by the Minister, perhaps by tweet, but the Department issued its advice by way of a press statement on the 28th of April. April. They say that subsequent to the decision being made and on foot of telephone contact by the department, the National Screening Service did raise a number of concerns verbally. And following the announcement, the cost, volume, impact on turnaround times, impact on perceptions of the programme's accuracy, challenges with processing GP payments and the potential difficulty in ceasing the arrangements in due course. However, they say, as they have previously stated, the concerns failed to recognise the circumstances of the unfolding crisis and were it not for those circumstances it would never have been necessary to contemplate such a step. The decision cannot be separated from the reality that GPs in difficult circumstances were dealing with large numbers of worried patients as a result of the issues which came into the public domain over the course of April 2018. It was important that GPs be supported while they awaited supporting information to be developed and was subsequently agreed with the IMO. This was welcomed by TDs across the Dáil and by GP representative bodies. The alternative, the spokesperson for the Minister says, would be that the state failed to recognise the reality of patients presenting in this way to GPs or the state refused to pay for such smears and that that would have been untenable in the circumstances. Now, what would it be like to be at university and living in direct provision as an asylum seeker? This is a question that students in Limerick have been grappling with. Lorcan O'Donnell of the University of Limerick has been speaking to me. He's the Deputy President and Student Life Welfare Officer. So this week is um, Sanctuary Week in UL. So Sanctuary Week is kind of a a week-long event of showcasing University of Limerick as a university sanctuary, but also, um, you know, having a number of events and initiatives taking place to try and improve integration of asylum seekers and refugees uh, in Limerick, but then also to educate the wider UL community on what it's like to, you know, to be a sanctuary student or to be someone who's living in direct provision. All right. What is a sanctuary student? Sanctuary students. So um, UL offer 15 um, scholarships to people living in direct provision um, each year. So any student who takes up one of these scholarships, which people call them sanctuary students because they're taking one of the sanctuary scholarships. And how are you going about trying to understand what it's like to be a sanctuary student? Yeah, so one of our big um, initiatives this week is and all the, the, the three student officers here in UL Student Life, which is a representative body of the, of the UL students. Um, we're trying to live on 38 to 80 um, a week. Um, people who live in direct vision receive just 38 to 80 a week as their weekly allowance. So for our students, that means um, they only have 38 80 a week to spend on, on transport, on food when they're at college, 
um, on printing costs, any academic costs, on clothes, on any, on, on phone credit. Um, so we're trying to um, shine light on you know some of the really uh, fierce restrictions there are on uh, on autonomy and on on some of the aspects of being of living of living in direct provision. All right, and how are you getting on on that allowance? Um, I thought it. I, it's kind of it, it's a difficult one. I thought it, I wouldn't have too much trouble with it for the week. You know, students are kind of known for being able to to stretch. Um, you know, small smaller amounts mm. of money, but uh, landed into the office on Monday morning and had my phone bill had to had to be paid. So that was twenty euro straight away. Uh, needs to be paid. So I'm already I'm already down to I was down 18, to eighteen, 18 yeah. and then mm. I had uh, I had to go for a coffee yesterday for a meeting. So that was another three euro gone. So now I'm at fifteen for the week, mm-hmm. um, and it's Wednesday, so I still have I still have what, four days left to go, and technically haven't you know haven't done my food shop yet for the week. So mm. I'll be going to Little and, and just getting the bare essentials. Um, the other two, the other two, Kira Joe, our student president, um, is on. I think she's on about twenty four euro. She had to she had to do a, a, a small shop yesterday, and uh, Matthew, who's our who's our mm. academic officer. Has I think he's doing the best out of all of us. He has about thirty euro left. But I suppose the the um, the aim of the of the awareness campaign, I suppose, isn't to uh, you know necessarily be able to do it. It's, mm-hmm. it's it, you know if if we go over um, the thirty eight eighty at the end of the day for us who, who who are working and who have the, who have the opportunity to work, it's not the end of the world that we're we're, we're able to do that. Whereas for mm-hmm. those in direct vision, that they they this is a strict budget that they have to plan. Um, every single day for every single week for where they're going to where they're, mm-hmm. how they're going to get somewhere how they're going to get home where they're going to get their food um, yeah. uh, w- Would that be an accurate reflection of how hard it is to live as one of the sanctuary students in University of Limerick uh, because generally speaking in direct provision people would get food and board wouldn't they as well as the they amounts would, of 38 yeah, They normally do mm-hmm. yeah but for, for sanctuary students in particular um, the bus leaves the direct vision centres here in Limerick um, before the breakfast gets served in the morning right. and it brings them back after dinner served in the evening so they miss out on those two mm. meals and then lunch during the day um, while, you know, while UL does offer 15 scholarships each year that just um, waives the fees for the students so there still is all the academic costs that all other students would have to um, mm. would have to cover and also then it, it doesn't allow for sanctuary students to you know really properly integrate into university life there's yep. no chance of them to involve, get involved in clubs or societies in events after hours um, you know they, 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 they struggle with that as well Alright and as you say uh, that's before you pay for your phone or yes, buy exactly. a packet of cigarettes if yeah. you're a smoker or a drink if you're a drinker or go yeah, to a you movie see, or you to go for a, go for a pint with your, with your yeah. classmates well that's what I'm saying or, or, or yeah. go to a movie or buy a new shirt or get a haircut yeah exactly mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I agree with you yeah uh, and they're the things that we all hope to do at a, a minimum in our lives depending on our, our yeah. lifestyle I suppose there's one more thing I'll say on it is, is that it's only gone up to 38.80 as of this week so which is an incredible increase it's almost yeah. double what it was yeah so it was 21.60 before this so you know if, if, if imagine living on living on 38.80 is hard <laughs> you wouldn't do very well anyway Cormac would you no I wouldn't be gone I'd be gone already <laughs> you, yeah. you, you'd be gone on your phone bill alone yeah exactly all right. Well, it's an interesting study and it highlights uh, the situation that people are in. Well done and uh, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Lorcan O'Donnell, UL Student Life Welfare Officer, speaking to me yesterday afternoon, brings our programme to its conclusion today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.